This week on the Three Rings podcast. What possibly could be harder than being a dancer? Are we realising how the industry is actually developing around us? Is it the hardest profession in the world? 20, 30 years of the people trying to help the industry, nothing's ever really come to fruition. What could be out of the box that I could do, which could take me to that next level? Okay, is anything actually happening or do we just keep getting told something is going to happen? Welcome to the third episode of the Three Rings podcast, where we discuss entertainment industry issues, news, stories, and advice. My name is Stuart Bishop, and I'm here with my fellow Three Rings director, Bailey J. Muir. How are you doing, Bailey? Yo, man, I'm all good. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right, yes. So before we dive into it, get below the video, hit the like button, subscribe to the channel, and turn your notification bell on so you know all about it when we put next week's out. Let's go through the topics one by one and then we'll get into our first main topic. So, unpaid surveys. How many times are we going to be asked to fill in surveys? And then topic two, hardest profession in the world? Is it? Is the performing arts the hardest profession in the world? And then topic three, we're going to be speaking about Google Music. You've all seen the adverts. Well, we're going to be discussing what this means. And then finally, we're going to be covering the NFL toy story. And could it be something that could be used in the performing arts, maybe? Four great topics today. Where are we starting? We're starting with these unpaid surveys. Yeah, so it popped up on Instagram. Um, the Arts Council England had put out a survey that they wanted all sorts of, I think it was performing arts facilitators, not necessarily just performers, so like camera guys, directors, lighting teams, etc. anyone that works in the performing arts to fill out this survey. And underneath it in the comments, there was then a lot of people putting in this sentiment of, this is just unpaid labour, why are there so many surveys going around? Which was fascinating. I can't say I've ever heard anyone calling a survey unpaid before, but there's certainly something to break down there in so many places you can take this conversation. So let me read it. It says, we've launched a survey to learn more about the working conditions and experiences of freelancers employed in the creative and cultural sector in England. And then it goes on to say, freelancers, we want to get to know you better. So, you know, they're not asking anything out of the ordinary. Um, we've all had we've all had surveys like this before. You know, let's go to the the, the comment which cracked us up and, and, and gave, gave us the gave us this topic. Um, it was Jam the Big Bear. Jam the Big Bear. He just puts underneath more unpaid labour. Please stop. That's the Arts Council. Bailey, that people are daring to put a sort of comment about. It just makes you think, you know, uh, how much work do people have to do for the performing arts to, to know what they're doing? You know, how much information, how many surveys, how many questionnaires until someone goes, right, well, I'm not going to ask anymore. I'm going to do. There's a point you started to hit on there, which is like, do the people putting out these surveys actually know what they need to be doing? I think that's exactly where it lies. Because these comments on the Arts Council post, I don't think for a minute that it's actually them wanting to attack the Arts Council survey. I don't think it's exclusive to that survey. I think people are just generally sick of the surveys because there are so many of them, so many that these people are expected to fill out. And obviously it feels totally unreasonable to put it's unpaid labour because you, it feels unfeasible to ever expect that you would be paid to do a survey. 
So I don't think that's actually the point they're trying to make as much as that is the wording. I think what's really between the lines here is to relate this to a um, Henry Ford quote. He used to say, if I asked the people what they wanted, they would have asked for faster horses. Obviously, as his solution, he instead presented cars, which got them to the destination even faster. And I think the sentiment of that is exactly what the performers are trying to say between the lines. It's like, yeah, we can give you all this info on how hard our lives are, what we want to see improve. But actually, we look up to these organisations to lead the way for us, tell us what the actual solution is. We don't want to feel like the people who are going, this is the solution, go and do it for us. The amount of times over the years, you know, I've done surveys from whether it's, you know, casting platforms or whether it's organisations or unions or networks or all these things. And it's like, you know the answers, you know the answers. Equity, for example, they know the answers, but they've got no power or no will to actually ever implement. It's always about, well, we've talked to these people and they don't, they're not really, well, just do it. I think there's so much effort put into like keeping their members happy rather than actually doing the work that performers are starting to reach this point of going, okay, is anything actually happening or do we just keep getting told something is going to happen? It's like with these surveys, you're asking individual people's accounts of what's wrong in the industry, what their experience is, how much they on average get paid. And it feels like almost the intention is to try and solve every single person's problems individually. And if we do that, how is the industry ever going to get anywhere? I mean, how many performers would you say there are in the UK? Like 10,000, 20,000? Think how long it takes to solve the problems for each of them people. It's like, as much as we want to make it better for every individual person, the individual accounts of the industry aren't necessarily helpful. We need to look at the overview, which I know people will say these surveys are put there to try and build that overview. But the overview, everyone in the industry knows anyhow. We all know what the general problems are, the general consensus. We know what we need to go and fix. So I guess it's coming to that point that they're going, right, stop asking what we need to do. You know what to do. Just go and do it. They're hoping the solutions will come from the answers. But it's, you know, if you don't know those answers already, you know, there's there's, I get it why people do, you know, market research and they do surveys and questionnaire. I get it to get data. But, you know, this is the top people in the industry, you know, the, whether it's whether it's an arts council, whether it's a spotlight or an equity or a dancers network. You know, these are these are seen as the top, you know, supposedly the the the, the, the top thinkers because they've created these organisations and they want change. But, you know, you can't be a revolutionary if you don't know how to be revolutionary. You know, you can't. It, it, there's, it, there's What's the point doing this if you then haven't got the strength to follow it through? This is it. And I think also the position to make the changes. Um, for example, once you've gathered all this data, what are you actually going to go and do with it? A lot of these groups that put out these surveys, even like your Arts Council, the furthest their power can reach is trying to lobby someone else to make the change. A lot of the changes that the industry needs to see, if we're completely honest, could be made by Spotlight if Spotlight wanted to. The groups that are actually trying to make the changes have to go and lobby Spotlight. Spotlight clearly have no interest, otherwise it would have all already been done 10 years ago. So I guess there's also a point in here of, if you want to see the change, 
become the person who can actually implement the change rather than trying to get someone else to implement it for you. The lobbying is already proven not to work. It's one of these things also, you know, a lot of these surveys are to do with showing that that people are still relevant, they're still they're still they're still they're still going and it's more promotion than actually what they're actually going to do, you know, with with that information. Um you know, it, it it's for example, the amount of times um, we've heard questions about the pencil policy in the dance industry, um, you know, these questions were being asked a year ago, it seemed, and we've had a year of surveys, a year of questions and a year of meetings and no, nothing's been done. Now, we saw it a year ago and we put our, we, we, we created our own pencil policy because we were like, right, it's got to be done. And it's been running now for the last, what, six months nearly? Yeah, be around that, if not more, maybe. Not sure. You know, and it and it and it's running perfectly. Yeah, literally never a single problem. It's easy. Clients have just picked it up straight away. And that is we've just basically made that up. <laughs> you know, we've made it up based on what we think is logic and then implemented it. Um we had no idea whether people would go with it or not, but that's our policy. So if they don't want it, then they work with somebody else. And it's I feel like instead of asking permission to create policy, individual, whether it's individual agents or individual companies, they've just got to just just do it. Do you know what I mean? Like, you, you, if you're waiting for an equity, if you're waiting for an arts council or waiting for an organisation or Dance UK or whoever you're waiting for, um, you're going to be waiting forever. For sure. This is a real key thing. To make the change, you've got to be in a position that you can make that your company policy. Not that you need to go and ask someone else to make it their company policy for the change you're trying to make happen happen. You're not in an effective position to bring change, unfortunately. It's like all, all the ideas are there and spot on. It's just the actual strategy towards implementing into the industry. That's the one part that 20, 30 years of the people trying to help the industry, nothing's ever really come to fruition. It's all about where you're positioned. And I think it's also just the volume of surveys we've got in our industry. There are industries where it works, which is why we've tried to do it in our industry. But we're now, what, 15 years into people doing online surveys and no results have ever been found. So are we just wasting time, keep trying to do this, which in our world is proven not to work at this point. Let's be real. We're very optimistic about about the sort of a, a new emerging industry. We're very, I suppose, pessimistic and can be negative about what we see as, uh, as a stagnant old industry. Um, and, and surveys are just, it's part of this industry of, of we're underneath every we're underneath <laughs> we're underneath every other profession um you know because for some reason it, we, we it's our hobby and we and, and we're creatives and we, we we we're too scared to ask for more money or be business like that's what it feels like um where the new entertainment the new performing arts the new industry you know a higher level industry is always going to be based around new ways of working because it cannot the pandemic wiped out the industry to be honest you know and it should have it, it should have ended it should have ended there uh, i think this is where we almost have like a warped perception in our industry as well um for example when we think of ourselves as like the lowest tier of it all and we're hard done by we're actually not in comparison like even in music 
the music artist on a shoe or on their tour, etc., actually often is tra- a lot worse than the actual talent behind them are. But because they are the star of the show, and the way the media portrays it, we automatically, within the dance world, jump to, oh, they're tre- better than us because they're the star. It's actually not the reality. When we look at the music industry, they are trapped horrifically, if we're completely honest. So absolutely, the improvement needs to be made. But sometimes we think we weigh up against other industries way lower than how we actually do weigh up in reality. We've all heard the song. Well, if you're in the arts, you will know the song um, from Fame, where they say, Dance is the hardest profession in the world. Acting, hardest profession in the world. It goes on and on. So the question is for our second topic is, is is being a performer the hardest, you know, is it the hardest profession in the world? Why do you think, Bailey, people do think it's the hardest profession in the world? Within the arts, we almost have an obsession with trying to be the star. So we all want to believe that we are special, obviously, on an individual level. Everyone is special. But on the job, in practice, in your professional role, how special actually are you? And because we're so desperate to think we are that special, then we think it must be really hard. And again, it's somewhere where we almost lose attachment to reality, where there's so many other things out there that are way harder. And we almost just like blinker ourselves to these things existing so that we can exist within our own little bubble of mentality where we're like, yeah, we we do have it really hard. Our life is a challenge. What possibly could be harder than being a dancer? Tell me, Bailey. I mean, this is it. It's a luxury, isn't it? At the end of the day, like most dancers have been wanting to become a dancer since they were five years old. It's an absolute luxury that your dream has come true. Like, sure, there's plenty of people out there who wanted to be a doctor, wanted to be a policeman, etc. But again, this might be where even I have that little bit of like, no, we're special, we are good. But it feels different wanting to be a dancer and achieving it than wanting to be a doctor and achieving it. And I think probably that is what from myself as well. This is where there is a whole mentality issue to expose. How different really is it? I don't think it is sort of delusional or anything um, or thinking too much of the profession. But deep, deep down, I would say being a performer, whether it's an actor or a dancer or a singer, is, you know, if you were to go to the majority of people, I think that the the most that people would want out of any profession would be wanting to be famous or wanting to be some kind of, you know, uh, creative. Well, this is it. Even these other job roles out there, like your police, the highest level they can reach in all of their industries is almost achieving that same level of fame. I mean, this is why you have your policemen that do like the, you know, like the SAS search programs on like Channel 4 and stuff. Every industry peaks at the level of entertainment, which is where we start our careers, where it's such a luxury. I think people say it's the hardest is because, because, you know, because they had to go through three years training. Um, and, yeah, it is intense, the training, you know, and it is hard. But I don't, again, when I think back of my three years or four years I did, four years of, you know, intensive ballet and jazz and contemporary training, I don't look back and go, God, that was the hardest thing ever. It was hard, 
and it was it was very tiring and it was you know it was a traumatic time colleges but i loved it you know i i i loved it so i can't look back and go okay that was hard and then i think okay well when i did dance jobs maybe about four o'clock uh in a rehearsal it gets a little bit hard you know when when the client comes in and you got you got to you know really go for it and show you know and you're knackered but again you know you finish at six and and you know you've got your whole afternoon off your whole evening off and it's you know uh, if you love what you're doing it feels like an injustice to actually go out there and call it hard it actually feels mental that we even like need to have this conversation that it actually feels controversial to point out that actually being in the army might be harder being in the police might be harder i can tell you definitely being a choreographer is not the hardest job in the world as a choreographer for 20, 20 odd years i just basically first couple of hours you do the job and then you sit down for the rest of the rest of the time um you know or you've got an assistant doing it so it can only be the dance part i think because as, a, as an actor you know okay you're on your feet maybe but I mean, acting, you still hear the exact same thing said. I mean, vocalists, exactly the same thing said. It's strange where this really comes from because it's such common sense when you really break it down. I mean, at the end of the day, like, yeah, these, like, 10-hour shoot days, it is hard work, but it's no more hard work than any other career path. Everything's hard work, everything's strenuous. Even when we bring it down to a training level, like, three years intensive training to then go out to the industry and be able to book the top job. Imagine how how many years they have to train to be like the top level doctor. Do you know what I mean? Like a brain surgeon. That's like 10, 10 years, 15 years of intensive training. We're at a real luxury. And I guess another point to bring this to as well is when we look at when the world goes crazy, if we use like war or a recent example like the pandemic, what was the first thing to go down? Theatre, live concerts, basically entertainment. Throughout the whole pandemic, medical service carries on, the army carry on, the police carry on, the fire service carry on, even the people who like uh, in the food industry, they all carry on. It puts into perspective how much of a luxury our industry is. It's like, I guess we're just trying to make that point, like, we should feel lucky and special that we get to have this career, not feel special because our work is so much harder than anyone else. We are special, but it's positioning your specialness in the right place. We are very, very, we're blessed that the fact that we've, we're in an industry that, that gives us so much freedom. Um, yes, there's always things that we want to have improved, but the fact that we can have those conversations, you know, there's, there's lots of professions where there is no conversation. You do what you're told. You, this is the job. You're, you're cutting that or you're picking that or you're doing this and it's, and that's it. You know, I think this is something where, with improvement, just because there can be improvement doesn't doesn't necessarily mean where it is right now is bad. We can always improve. It's like such as that point with the breaks in a day. Like, if a dancer is dancing from ten a.m. till two p.m., there is absolutely a conversation to be had there of whether that is safe. Kind of bringing us back to the point I was trying to make in um, the first podcast around like bringing science and technology into dance. A professional athlete is advised to do like an hour and a half of intensive work and then have a break, then another hour and a half. There is a point where we should probably bring science into these shoot days, rehearsal days, 
to optimise performance. But just because that improvement can be made doesn't mean the current schedule is bad. It just means there's always room to grow. This is what we're trained for. It's like a boxer um, complaining that they're being hit. To be the best dancers, you've got to push it. It's not just also uh, about physically being able to do it. It's about mentally being able to do it. It almost links us back to what we were saying in that first topic today. It's like, as soon as you are feeling frustrated with it, feeling like it's hard for you, and you see a change that you feel needs to be made, don't expect someone else to make that change for you. That's your point to move up and make that change. So the next generation of you that comes up underneath, don't face that problem that you started to feel that you were facing. It's like, don't expect someone else to make your life easier for you. It's our duty to make everyone else's life easier for them. That's the sort of mentality we need to move forward with if improvement is actually going to come. If you are enjoying this episode, why not check out some more great content from our Three Wings talent, such as the latest video from Alexa Williams. Just click the top right corner. Topic three, Google Music. I actually, you keep saying they're, they're all over. I haven't seen, apart from when you showed me, I haven't seen anything to do with Google Music, but um, you reckon it's all over the internet. And tell us about it. Google Music, a lot of people probably know, have their service, which is, I think it's called Hum to Listen, which is basically Google's version of the Shazam app. And recently they've started a new campaign where they've got TV adverts and influencer deals. However, what's really interesting to look at is the TV commercial going round is exactly the same creative as the influencer activations are. There's almost zero difference. They could take the video of TikTok, make it landscape and put it on TV. No one would know that that weren't the actual commercial. So it unlocks this interesting conversation of, are we realising how the industry is actually developing around us? TV commercials are getting less and less frequent in terms of casting. Have the influencer scene is getting more and more of these activations that look identical. So I guess we want to try and have a conversation around, is the influencer scene separate or is the influencer scene the future of the casting industry? Is this where artists need to start moving to, building their followings so they can land those deals? Is that actually the way now to work with these brands Whereas 10 years ago, it was the TV commercials. Why don't you explain there the difference? You know, when you say an a, um, influencer activation, why don't you just explain to the viewers exactly what that is, what that actually means? I'll explain it from both sides. So on the casting side, as all performers will kind of know, there's a whole casting process goes on. Agents submit a load of ideas to the client. Client then picks from there. On the influencer side, it actually tends to be way more that the client makes their own shortlist of people, then comes to the agent and goes, I would like to work with this person, this person, this person. Are they interested? So the major difference really is in the casting process. It's completely flipped on its head and reversed, which I always think actually makes the influencers feel a lot more like stars and they're a lot more like that. They're actually picked in a sense. Obviously in casting you're picked, but in a very different way. So that really is your core difference. In terms of then production, influencers obviously will just film it on their phone so they don't have the whole production crew around them. For a wider industry topic, not necessarily the greatest thing in the world for all the other job roles. However, on the talent level, absolutely fine. 
obviously in the commercial side, you're going to have your editors, camera teams, lighting teams. It's going to be way more produced. But ultimately, the creative is still the same. Often, you will still actually have a director on the influencer side, just like you would on the commercial side. So the real differences are in production and in casting. And what you're saying with this, you've seen the TikTok version and you've seen what they're showing on on TV. Is that right? Yes, totally right. And and you're saying on TV, how many people did it, got the job? Literally just one. Let's say that per. let's just, just round it off. Let's say they were paid 20 grand. So that one person, 20 grand. Now, compared to the, the TikTok uh, influencers activation, how many people would have done that and 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 how many you know what's the benefits there i wouldn't like to put a number on how many people have actually been booked on that but i've seen at least 20 or 30 people with that exact same activation in terms of pay they'll have probably been paid somewhere around a thousand pound upward for that so obviously there is a difference in the fees but there's more volume of work you've got more chance of booking it in the influencer space However, also the amount of work you put in on the TV commercial shoot, you're going to have, d- have done at least one 10 hour long day. On the influencer side, you're making probably a 15 to 30 second video. Obviously, that might take a few takes, a bit of back and forth with the client. But overall, I would expect you've probably put in somewhere between like one to three hours work across the whole process. And in the influencer space, that process also covers what? Our equivalent would be of the casting days, the recalls, the sell tapes. All of that is covered by the influencers' fees. That's not covered in the time or fees on the TV commercial. So actually, when you balance the time against the value, I would say the influencers are getting paid more for their time, even though the actual fee is less. And with the volume of work, influencers have a far more sort of consistent level of income than what 90 percent of professional dancers do if you've got say twenty thousand pounds for your for your talent why get uh, you know twenty thousand pounds isn't going to get a celebrity which is going to make it viral right but 20 influencers who have got huge you know uh, moderate following should i say you know if they're going to get 20 they're probably not going to get 20 um Kim Kardashian type um, numbers, um, but those twenty, the reach must be surely, you know, it's got to be bigger than than one person doing a commercial being probably watched by absolutely no one on TV. Well, th- this is exactly it. This is where we're in this new media territory, which often the casting industry seems to be writing new media off as like lower viewing figures, and it's completely wrong. There's actually a very real chance that every single influencer is individually giving you a higher reach than any of these TV slots are giving you right now. Unless you're hitting like the prime Saturday night TV, TV watching figures are so, so low. And especially watching figures of the actual adverts now we have such as on demand, people can actually just record things and watch it an hour later and then fast forward the ads. People aren't really consuming those adverts at all in comparison to where they would 10 years ago. Well, actually, not even more than that. All the recording, that that's over 10 years now, so probably 20 years since TV's really been at its peak for a TV commercial. The influencer scene is going to deliver way more results 
everything's on cycles, you know. People can't expect for things to stay the same. You know, as a performer, you cannot just be a performer. You have to have some kind of brain working over time, which is, you know, seeing what is the future? What is next? What is coming? What is what could be out of the box that I could do, which could take me to that next level? This is it. We've got to be aware of that future. Let's say if podcasts existed in like the 40s and 50s, you would have been able to find people having this conversation around, you know, those radio commercials, they seem to be moving to TV. Maybe we should follow and try and become TV actors now. This conversation has happened so many times over the past hundred years of entertainment. And it feels like every time it comes with the same stigma of, oh, that will take off. They're different than us. We need to remove that stigma. We need to move with the times. That's how we're going to create consistent careers. This conversation, it's not the first time it's happened. It's just the first time on this version of the topic. Anyway, <laughs> Bailey, why don't you talk to us about, tell us about the NFL Toy Story? This is quite unbelievable, I think. It was a couple of weeks ago now, um, but Disney Plus, in coordination with ESPN, did a sort of AI-generated video stream where they picked up a match from the NFL, which was the Atlanta Falcons versus the Jacksonville Jaguars, and they turned it all into these like little AI toy models and broadcast it all in Andy's room from Toy Story, used all the Toy Story characters around it as like more entertainment, and it was literally like live played. I was watching it. I was watching the animation on TV and the actual match on my phone next to it. And it was like, there was no delay whatsoever. It was unbelievable. And from watching it, I just couldn't help but think, okay, if we can replicate this level of intricacy in AI with the way they'll throw American footballs and tackle each other, this is probably there, or just about there, where actually we can take a dancer and AI replicate them. Obviously, we've had it for about 10 years with, like, mocap suits. But the way this was done, like, there's no mocap suits anymore. Those players were out there genuinely playing the match. They weren't wearing any special equipment. It was just clever cameras picking them up and instantly generating. So it made me think, is there something here which is a little bit of, of the future of dance? Probably not exactly in the way it was done here where it's like little toys in Toy Story, although that would be a cool little gimmick. But the way that AI is implemented, is that bringing us to a point that actually, finally, maybe we can make dance industry based on a product not just based on being engaged to dance on something else for example where hollywood have films music industry have albums music videos so dance industry we just don't drop ourselves into the music industry's videos we don't drop ourselves into hollywood's films we don't have our own product that we can market sort of linking to last week's with the super bowl where i use that example if maddie ziegler does a halftime show and can market her own tickets awesome but for the average dancer working for free with nothing to market what's the point maybe this whole ai thing presents potential for us to have that product as dancers i have no idea how it would look but it's an interesting conversation certainly something which the dance industry needs let's go back on this first of all this nfl story twisty thing it it was incredible when you showed me this i was just like that is the exact as they're playing, I don't know how they did it. There was like no lag at all. Um, do you know any more about that? Like, is that what is the technology behind it? Like, you know, because as they were playing, 
the cartoon it, it just seemed impossible to me yeah it's just these new special cameras they've got that are essentially designed to just be able to like pick up the human form and then they like map out um i don't know what you would call it technically but like the lines of what like a basic human anatomy was to work out oh okay that's a leg that's an arm that's bent at that joint and because of the speed a computer can work at it can then instantly create that map and put it onto another model so it's almost the same technology they've been using in motion capture for years but now because they can pick it up without the mocap suits it speeds it all up to where you can do it with no lag okay so what are we talking about here are we talking you know you're not necessarily saying oh dancers could be replicated as in you know we could but the the interesting thing was the concept coming up with something which is again out of the box you know that is going to bring you know it's nfl with toy story so it's going to bring you know why are they doing that why do you think they they bring they're trying to bring in new people to watch it aren't they yeah i think it's all about trying to attract the next generation into watching nfl obviously using toy story as that catch it's the first time kids are really going to watch and pay attention to the full match but from that then you know what kids are like they're so impulsive they might suddenly go do you know what i'm a jackson jaguars fan now and i'm going to watch every single match the other ones aren't broadcasting toy story world but you've got them hooked now, you've got that in. And it catches them in in a marketing sense to then keep going with the content. And it keeps the NFL's audience developing. I think that's the key to it, really. It's like, um, what, what you know, why would kids drink Pepsi and Coke now? Why would they do that? Because Pepsi and Coke aren't doing cool stuff. They're not sponsoring Harland. And, uh, you know, they go, the kids are drinking this Prime because it's it's exciting. It's it's the Pepsi Max. Do you remember years ago they had all the, you know, the, the, the Galacticos, David Beckham, Zidane and Figo doing those adverts? So you're like, right, Pepsi Max, Max is the cool drink. Now it's Prime because we, we're seeing, we're seeing Prime, you know, uh, that bottle of Prime walking, you know, it ended up being KSI, didn't it? Walking down, was it at WrestleMania or at, where was it? SummerSlam or? I mean, they've done all sorts, but he was at WrestleMania, WWE's WrestleMania, Logan and KSI. I mean, Logan's almost a regular in WWE now and he literally brings it to the ring with him every time. Same as the boxing fights, they bring it down to the ring with him every time. They have a little dancing Prime bottles, don't they? Even though it's a drink, they've made that um, intellectual property out of the image. I mean, you see people walking around now like prime bucket hats. It's mental. Those prime bottles are essentially like Marvel superheroes. Well, I've never seen, I mean, I know we're talking, we're meant to be talking about, I suppose, the NFL, but I, I've never seen, and in my lifetime, people queuing up for a drink. You know, if you think about it, you've seen iPhones, people queue up for iPhones, you know, um, and it's you can see what they've done. <laughs> they've created this, you know, whether they did it on purpose or not, you know, they created all these fans and only this amount of stock, um, which creates then, you know, droves of dro and, and it's the classic, actually. That's what that's what Apple do with their iPhones. You know, they're 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 priming, funnily enough, they're priming people for months and months and months. There's only gonna be a certain amount being made in the first, you know, available for the first year and stuff like that. So people are like, oh, gotta get my iPhone, gotta get my iPhone. Like um, but you know, what's cool about this is it, it it's it's something different. And and what we're saying is is you know again performing arts 
entertainment, businesses. The, the, if you can find something different, people are going to watch, people are going to talk about. Yeah, this is it. It's all about finding something different. I mean, another thing that's really on trend right now is the, um, have you seen the Sphere in Las Vegas, that new venue? Like that, that's another thing. Just changing the way a concert could look suddenly reactivates an entire audience who probably wouldn't have thought of going to a U2 concert. It's just finding these new things to keep people interested. We can't just rely on, well, they've watched that before, so they'll watch it again. We need to innovate. So do you want to do, do, you want to do the CTAs? Oh, I'd love to do the CTAs. <laughs> so thank you for watching this episode. If you've enjoyed, drop us a comment down below. Give us a like. Hit that subscribe if you haven't already. And again, hit the notification bell and then you'll know when the next version of this podcast comes out. Thanks very much, Bailey. I'll see you um, see you next week and I'll see you in our meeting uh, very, very soon. Nice one. Catch you soon, Mum. <laughs>